This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 27, The Long Dark. Hello again, and it is good to talk to all of our listeners, our old listeners and our new listeners, as we continue getting deeper into Season 2 of our rewatch of Babylon 5. We're coming for you! We're coming for (laughs) you! And yeah, we get to explore a bit of a departure this week as um, suddenly there's a bit of horror in our science fiction. Uh, This is not a new thing. Um, Certainly Star Trek, the original series, Doctor Who, plenty of science fiction shows have played with horror tropes in the past. Um, No reason that Babylon 5 shouldn't give it a try. And uh, I think we will be talking about whether they did so successfully or not. (laughs) Yes, yes, yeah. yes, we will. We may be even <laughs> disagreeing a bit. <laughs> I think that's likely. Oh, boy. Yes, it's happened before. Maybe it'll happen again. <laughs> but before we get into our discussion, our usual recap, what you need to know if this is your first episode of Babylon 5. Once Earth got Jumpgate technology from the Centauri as part of opening relations with them about a hundred years ago, they quickly began whizzing about the galaxy like a teen driving legally for the first time. Before then, they had been confined to exploring their own solar system and sending out a few deep space exploration ships. Earth quickly found trouble in a couple of interstellar wars, and after the end of the Earth-Mimbari War, several major races worked together to create the neutral space station Babylon 5. It quickly became a major hub for diplomacy, travel, and commerce, with the occasional oddities straying into their sensors. In this episode, the crew discovers an old Earth deep space explorer from the previous century, the Copernicus, drifting into their sector. They bring the ship on board and find two cryogenic tubes. One has a corpse, while the other holds a woman who is still alive. Dr. Franklin and his team manage to revive her, and she identifies herself as Mariah Cirrus, one of a pair of volunteers who were meant to travel far beyond Earth's solar system in stasis and be awakened when the ship detected communication signals. She is stunned to hear that over a hundred years have passed and her husband died on the voyage. Dr. Franklin quickly develops a romantic interest in her, even as he is needed to investigate her husband's death. A lurker in Down Below appears to go berserk when the Copernicus approaches and begins spewing apocalyptic warnings to any and all. Garibaldi, recognizing that Amos is a war veteran like him, tries to offer support. The crew slowly makes the connection between the death of Mariah's husband and Amos's intelligence unit from the war, an invisible alien that stowed away on the Copernicus. Realizing that the alien that killed them is on the station, Garibaldi has Amos help him track it, and Sheridan is able to coordinate an attack that kills the creature. And that is The Long Dark. This is the um, first episode uh, directed by Mario DeLeo, who uh, directed half a dozen TV shows prior to Babylon 5, uh, but has much more experience as a cinematographer. And he was a cinematographer for Murder, She Wrote. That may be where he and JMS crossed paths. He did go on to direct three more episodes of the show um, during its run. And it's also the only episode written by Scott Frost, who is best known for writing uh, episodes of Twin Peaks. Hence, perhaps, the horror what did you guys think of this episode? I would like to defer to Erica. <laughs> okay. I, I really, really liked this one. You know, when it first got started, I, I didn't recognize the title as meaning anything to me, as, as always. And then once we got into it, I actually found that I didn't have a very strong memory of this episode at all. So I was kind of, I mean, it sort of started coming back to me, but much later than they usually do. Usually I see the first scene or two and I'm like, okay, it's this episode and that happens. And and for some reason, mm-hmm. this one didn't stick with me quite so much. And I think that's because this episode is really kind of an outlier in the, the Babylon 5 world. Like you said, we, we haven't dipped into the, uh, the horror genre too much. And I think that this is one of the more cinematic episodes of Babylon 5. It's, you know, it's kind of self-contained. There's you know, lots of horror elements, um, some special effects, and we don't even have a B-plot here. This is just its mm-hmm. own 
one story from beginning to end. And I really, I thought they did a great job with it and it, it worked really well. But it is something that's kind of outside of what we get from Babylon 5. Usually, I kind of, in my brain, I was likening it, if, uh, for Doctor Who fans out there, to Seeds of Doom, which is a fourth Doctor story, which is n- very much an outlier as far as sort of the the way that the Doctor acts and the, the story. It's much more sort of action hero-y and the Doctor is kind of ineffectual. Um, but it's really seen as a great story by a lot of people, myself included. I, I feel the same way about this. It's not the most Babylon 5-y of Babylon 5 stories, but I really, really like the way it came together. Okay. Chip, what do you think? I typically make a point and I typically get worked up when I see arguments on the internet about episodes, whether they're any good or not. I tend to prefer to say, I don't like them rather than this is a bad episode. Erica, I don't like The Long Dark. Really? Tell me why, because I'm very curious. <laughs> um, it's all about the execution for me. And uh, I think on the script level and the directorial level, There are things that I want to like. There are things that I want to have worked out better than they did. But it feels disjointed in both aspects. There are, as far as the script is concerned, there are some coincidences going on that drive me a little crazy. Uh, The the fact that the Copernicus... um, that the the alien jumped onto the Copernicus from the planet where Amos's unit got wiped out, and then the Copernicus makes it to uh, Babylon Five. And as as I'm watching this and sort of reacquainting myself with the episode, I'm I'm like, oh wait a minute, the reason the Copernicus came to Babylon Five was the alien was looking for Amos, and then at the end, no, the Copernicus just happened to pass by Babylon Five on the way to the planet Zahadum, which was mentioned uh, a couple of episodes ago. So it's very convenient that Babylon 5 is on a straight line between that planet and the other planet. And little things like that just kind of drive me crazy. Um, There's also a moment in the script when Amos is taken by the alien off screen. he, He breaks away from Garibaldi, runs off. We hear Amos scream. We fade to black, it's commercial break, and we come back and Garibaldi's sitting in, casually in Sheridan's office, talking about what happened. Things like that just really bother me from a, from a scripting standpoint, from a directorial standpoint as well. Uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, Dwight Schultz's performance, and there's some good stuff and some bad stuff in there. But basically, The Long Dark strikes me as ambitious but a real mess. And this is one of those times when I can't give it points for being ambitious because it's just too messy for me. Wow. I just, I don't see the mess <laughs> at all. Well, first of all, I'm not a person who has trouble with coincidences like that because really when you, you know, pick apart any script where anything interesting is happening, there's usually some coincidence in there that just makes it all possible. So I, I don't have a problem with the ship being in between there. And and the part about Garibaldi and Amos, I didn't even notice that <laughs> um, <laughs> about him being taken and then Garibaldi sitting calmly and talking about it. Like it just, that didn't even didn't even twig to me. I, I really thought the execution of this was great. I liked I liked yeah. everything about it. Uh, yeah, I lean, I lean more towards Chip's viewpoint in this one. I just felt, especially given a lot of the things that have to wait till after the jump gate, that basically this episode frustrated me because I felt like it could have done so much more than it wound up doing. Like it just didn't have enough time to, to get it through. Uh, there was the jump that Chip mentioned. One of the jumps that irritated the heck out of me was Mariah is woken up. The news is broken to her that, you know, yeah, it's 100 years later. And oh, by the way, your husband died. Sorry. And, you know, she's all devastated. We fade to black because there's commercial time. And we come back and uh, Franklin is happily, you know, they're, he's leading her around the Zocalo and she's all mm-hmm. wide eyed at, you know, hey, new century. You know, she's sort of hanging no on his arm there, there, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's no real time for us. We don't get to see you know, her start to recover, things like that. Just there were like two or three times in the episode where it just felt like there had to have been more script there. There had to have been more 
that got cut. And that that really frustrated me. You know what? Um, I will I will absolutely give you the uh, the, the whole plot line with uh, Mariah and and Stephen. I did not like. <laughs> so oh, I, I, com- I think we're all on board with this one. Yeah. So I completely yeah. agree. That, that one jump that you mentioned, I, I got it too. Uh-huh. Like she's she's smiling in the very next scene and sitting down to to have a snack with him in the Zocalo, and I was just mm-hmm. like, what? So yeah, I think what I was thinking of this episode overall, I had sort of it wasn't like hand waving, it was like hand washing. I was just washing away that whole plot line in my head. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't blame you. That was the other thing that really frustrated me was in the case. And, you know, as Chip said, in some of the some of the acting decisions or some of the directorial decisions that had to do with the acting, because we've got Amory Johnson, who has uh, an established good career. She um, was a major character in The Heat of the Night and was very good in that. And of course, we've got Dwight Schultz, you know, uh, I'm and sorry, Murdoch from the A-Team. You know, Ensign Barkley from Star Trek. And, broccoli, you know, we broccoli. know how good, hush, we know how good these actors are. And yet there were times when, you know, it felt like either, you know, he was chewing the scenery way too much, even for someone who's supposed to be acting um, in a mon- maniacal manner, or she is just way too dewy eyed and, you know, uh, all over Franklin. And I sh- I'm sorry, <laughs> she and Richard Biggs. Garibaldi and Amos had more chemistry than they did. I agree. <laughs> it was, you know, it was really frustrating, again, to watch what, you know, could have been some really neat character development kind of hampered by the acting. I will. I, I, I completely agree that um, that she was I just I didn't really buy her the, the chemistry between them, her performance, any of that story. The fact that Dr. Franklin was falling so hard for a patient when he's been fairly fairly professional up until now i just yeah i didn't like any of that however i i'm gonna again disagree with you on on the dwight schultz bit the very first scene that he's in where he's kind of just going all crazy okay that one was was maybe a little scenery Mm -hmm. chewy a little bit over the top um and (laughs) steven even after that one said i think i would have directed that scene a little differently because it was just one camera shot when he's he's acting all Mm -hmm. all crazy but after Mm -hmm. that I thought he was fantastic. I'm, the scenes that were my favorite were the ones where he was sort of in his right mind and not acting crazy. Yeah. I found his performance just completely touching. I mean, it almost brought tears to my eyes. And then later on when he we kind of gets crazy again, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as that first scene. So I was, I was mm-hmm. fine with it. I, I would agree with you on that, but only to the extent that I liked his sort of calmer moments. His saner moments, uh, his conversations with uh, Garibaldi in the uh, in the jail, and he's like, "How long have I been out? What did I do this time?" You know that stuff. Mm-hmm. I really love that. The rest of it, I did think was a little over the top. But Dwight Schultz, I liked him a lot in Star Trek. I even liked him in the A Team, which was a role where he was not asked to do particularly subtle things. This time around. I almost would have preferred it if it had been a little less manic, uh, a little more consistent. It's like his attitude and his intensity fluctuates with the needs of the script and not with the needs of the character. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, he, he calms down and he's really interesting. And then he ramps back up and... He's more or less successful depending on the scene, and I think I could I, I think I could agree with you, Erica, that he's better later on in the episode than in the early going. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Me when too. when he's when he's standing on when he's standing on a table in the Zocalo, I'm not a big fan. When he is desperate and wild eyed, lashing out at the invisible alien and down below, I'm on board with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I hear you. But generally speaking, I think. And, and maybe this is direction, but I think that Schultz could have turned in a better performance than he gave because we've seen him do better. Well, you know, when you're <laughs> if we're talking about bad acting, I think this this story had one of the the worst, you know, one line guest characters on. Oh, Canada. my God. Yes, I know who you're talking <laughs> the, about. The security agent who says, damn lurkers, out of space, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so really, that, that compared was... to that, he was, you know, it's an Oscar winning performance, really. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, that that was really, really poorly done, even though, you know, yes, I understand what 
if JMS was working with uh, Frost to put the line in there to continue to hammer home the idea that Babylon 5 has a class system just like any other place, and um, there's always one class that's going to get dumped on or dismissed. Yeah, and actually, um, let's. Uh, I-, I wanted to mention that, call that out real quick. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, Franklin is on Team Mariah at this point in the story, but when they're talking in Med Lab about Amos and Franklin says, you know, you're going to take the word of a lurker over, you know, there are Mm -hmm. all these little moments there of uh, sort of that subtle, subtle classism, I guess, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. um, you don't like to see that in your characters, but you do like to see that some of these prejudices just haven't gone away. And that I think that's very real. I mean, it keeps the characters human, you know, for want of a better term, you know, that shows, you know, even though. Franklin obviously is one of the better guys. He's actually, you know, opened up a clinic down below just to offer medical care. And yet, you know, that's still his instinct is to defend the person who strikes him as being like him. She's professional. She's a scientist. You know, she's an explorer. She volunteered for this mission. Um, And he goes straight for her side rather than, you know, this random lurker. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the fact that Garibaldi is willing to believe and follow, you know, his fellow soldier. Mm-hmm. I think it, it gives us a nice little picture yeah. of his background as a soldier, too, as well as that little bit of character development. He's just, you know, he's just the blue collar gropo guy. And 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 we get to see that in action. So is this actually consistent with what we've seen from Garibaldi before? Because I seem to recall him not being that big a fan of the lurkers in previous episodes is are are, not lurkers as a group but individuals when his contact back um at the season one and season two beginning when his when his contact had gotten killed this was a guy he'd taken under his wing uh was trying to help the guy went undercover um as a lurker in order to get you know this extra bit extra job where he discovered the um equipment that was going to be used to kill the president um, here, he's got a connection. He recognizes Amos as a fellow war veteran. So I think, you know, Garibaldi will reach out to individuals when he finds a connection. Um, but as a class, lurkers do nothing but cause him problems. So right. I, I, I still I, think I he is that. prejudiced against lurkers. Mm-hmm. I agree. But I think the the fact that this guy is a soldier, we get that sort of it's not, classism is not exactly the right word there. But because he's a soldier, that trumps the fact that he's a lurker. I think if this guy was just a mm-hmm. lurker, he would still be sitting in the brig. And Franklin's mm-hmm. reaction is different from what we're used to because Franklin's got the hots for a patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just don't get where uh, that comes from. Uh, uh, We've seen the, it once before. Um, the the quality of mercy he kind of latched on to um, uh, Doctor Rosen's daughter a bit. Yeah, but she so, wasn't a patient. That this is this true, is ethically yeah. icky. It's really icky. Yeah. It is. At least, I mean, he does recognize that it's icky. Of course, I mean, after he, the kiss. Of, yeah. Well, he takes her, first of all, he takes her back to his apartment and Stephen right. was just like, right. whoa, that's dodgy. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah. So then they kiss. Yeah. And he says, at least it's, it's not appropriate. I mean, the only thing that I can say to myself to make it make sense a little bit is that what we've seen so far from Dr. Franklin is that he has this incredible curiosity. He yeah. wants to know as much as he can about the universe. And here he has um, somebody who is from a hundred years ago who has sort of that same curiosity volunteered to go on this incredible, mm-hmm. you know, long range mission. And he, I mean, it's and it's all wrapped up in a package of a very pretty, attractive lady. So I, mm-hmm. I guess that that's what they were going for. But I just I feel like he's too smart for that. But yeah, and, to, and to the and to the story's credit, the story recognizes that this is problematic because when Franklin says she couldn't have done it, she was with me last night. Mm-hmm. Garibaldi and Sheridan's reaction is mm-hmm. perfect. They're a little offended, they're a little suspicious, and they think that Franklin's compromised his professionalism, and they don't, this isn't yucks, this is a problem. And Mm -hmm. Sheridan's mad, and Garibaldi says, I hope you're right, but you better be careful. And he's not saying, protect yourself, he's like, you're on the verge of making a big mistake here. And I do like that the story acknowledges that. Mm -hmm. It's brief, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that it's enough (laughs) to cover up the fact that... (laughs) This is not rational or sensible behavior for Franklin, but, you know, mm-hmm. it, at least they did do that. 
And I love that scene that that you mentioned because the reactions of the three characters there just it it works. You're right; they're all perfect. But I like what it says about their relationships uh, amongst each other because when you have Doctor Franklin admitting that, you get Sheridan coming down on him pretty hard. Like this is a commanding mm-hmm. officer to a subordinate officer saying, "Get your stuff together, buddy," because this this ain't ain't okay. And then just before you know, and Sheridan's gone just before Garibaldi leaves. Garibaldi also has a similar kind of, you know, you can tell he feels the same way about it, but he is interacting with Dr. Franklin on a more sort of peer-to-peer level. Like, these are, you know, older friends. They've been together longer and just saying, hey, buddy, Mm -hmm. this ain't okay. So I really just like the the dynamics of the interactions in that scene. Actors portraying grown-ups in the script, having Mm -hmm. the characters behave as grown-ups would, even when the grown-ups aren't actually being all that mature. It's kind of believable. Um, so Franklin's behavior, Sheridan's behavior in council chambers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love Sheridan in this story. He's he's not in it a whole lot, but every time he is, I feel like he plays the captain role to a T. Mm-hmm. Even when he's being all kind of, um, well, can we, can we say pissy? Yes, I think we can. <laughs> that one's fine and he is and he's got a good reason to be and i i like that he's not afraid to take the bull by the horns and you know put the give that give that alien a dressing down and sort of put him in his place mm-hmm. because you know he may agree with the sentiment of this guy but he gosh darn it is going to keep control of his station and, and nobody better get in the way of that i like it and then mm-hmm. but then you know he does sort of lose his cool and it may be justified, and he does put the guy in his place, and then he walks over to um, to Ivanova, and uh, you know she she what what was her dry reaction there? But she's like you know you you were kind of nuts. <laughs> yep. And, and again, I, she mm-hmm. she's professional enough that she can point out you could have mm-hmm. handled that a little more calmly. It's 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 kind of another similar example to, you know, Dr. Franklin being unprofessional, although that's on a much huger scale, and the show recognizing it. And this is this is Sheridan blowing his top a little bit and the show recognizing it and, and pointing it out. Yeah, in, in general, um, Sheridan worked for me as well. I liked the um, establishment of his mantra of um, I'll believe it when I see it. That that that's sort of you know establishing you know a bit more of his character that you know he needs to be shown something, but once he's shown something, he goes after tries to take care of the problem. The only thing I actually had a moment, Erica, when um, I actually put down in my notes, you know, wide-eyed acting question mark because there was that point in the council chambers that we mentioned with the uh, Markab ambassador, um, with him just sort of slowly standing up and then delivering for one second. I was just like, so is this what Erica was talking about in first season with Sheridan? Because that one moment just struck me as a little bit too much. Huh. But. You know, if I were to go back and watch it again, I maybe I would see that. Just in uh-huh. the context of watching this show unfurl, mm-hmm. it didn't strike me that way. But okay. I, can, I can see what you mean, I think, in retrospect. Yeah, yeah that just that, that one moment, it immediately made me think of, of, of your wide-eyed acting uh, phrase <laughs> that we used with uh, Sinclair several times. Okay, anything else sort of character-wise to talk about? Um, I... One thing, when we were talking about the council scene, I really liked the different setups of the different factions forming, because now Jakar finally maybe has an ally in, in this other race that, you know, had knows something about his darkness from a thousand years ago. And on the other side, you've got Londo sneering at it and, oh, superstition and not believing it at all. And, you know, Sheridan, who's willing to listen but needs more proof. So, so we've got that, that setup continuing to grow through the politics. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And, and so did Steven. He was like, oh, Jakar, he suspects something. He knows something. Um, but <laughs> the thing that I also found interesting in the same uh, council room scene is how Londo was just so very dismissive. And I wondered mm-hmm. if if, that, if this is directly related to the fact that he is, you know, working with forces he doesn't quite understand, or if he's mm-hmm. just being dismissive because it sounds like a ghost story. Well, really and there's that. And there's also, he just... He's carrying himself a little more darkly now. Um, He's wearing – I think he's wearing a different cloak or at least he just looks physically darker right now. And I just Mm -hmm. uh, got that sense that, you know, he's he's on the upswing. He's had a chance to let his 
ego bruises heal after his visit with the techno mage. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, he's he's feeling pretty good about himself right now, and there there's something darker and more dismissive about him in this time around, and I think it's about his station. I think that's where he is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I did really get the feeling, you know, when you said, I think you said something to the effect that he had more important things to do. I really did yeah. get that feeling from him that this was just a waste of his time and he's got bigger fish to fry. Mm-hmm. But where the heck are Delin and Kosh in all this, you know? I don't yeah, that was supposed to be a full council meeting and no Bimbari representative and no Kosh. So. And no word about where they are. Of course, also speaking of, of characters who were not around. Oh, <laughs> are we going there again? Stephen was saying after it finished, you know, he was talking about how much he liked the episode and and how it really hummed along. Uh, It just it was very enjoyable for him. And then he says, except there were two people where we were trying to learn about their dreams and what was in their head. You know who would have been really helpful there? The telepath. But nope, not even a mention. There wasn't even a thing saying, you know, she was she was off station or anything like that. She's just completely gone. So he was just mightily shaking his head at that. (laughs) yeah he's got a point yeah he should i mean before we watched this episode he had to pull the uh the dvd out of the box and he happened to look at the front of the uh the box set and he just he just got irate like he points because she's on the front of there and he points and he's like no 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 that's okay that's not okay and then he (laughs) then he started ranting about how racist they were because there are no aliens on the cover (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there were aliens so, uh, on the cover last time. Blondo and Jakar are on season one. What do you want, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, I mean, they're you know the background characters are still showing diversity. We've got the you know Asian med tech, and I think even the um, security guard um, with his uh, with his grumping about down below. Uh, I think was Asian as well. And we've got when the strike team goes in after the alien, um, you've got men and women in full battle armor yeah. back there. Which is so, nice. You know, it's, it, it's all still there. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yes, we can. can. We ta- sure. Can we talk about the, well, I mean, we've, we've sort of been talking about the, they weren't the B-plot stuff, but the the thrust of the whole plot is alien sneaks onto the ship. Let's hunt the alien. Let's kill the alien. Did this episode do a good job of of being a hunt and kill the suspenseful alien kind of thing? Because I got to be honest, I'm not feeling it, Erica, I he said. I didn't I, I didn't think it was I didn't actually read it so much as a hunt and kill the alien story, which I think is why I liked it so much, because sometimes I find that a little bit a little bit boring because there were so many other elements to this that were necessary in order to find the alien. It wasn't just scary thing running around the ship killing people. We need to hunt it down. It was there's a mysterious thing happening on the ship. We don't know what it is. At first, they didn't even know if it was a creature. They, they had no idea. Um, and then, you know, you find out that it's got this connection to one or possibly two of the characters. I just I really liked the process of discovery that went on throughout the course of this story. Um, it was like we were unraveling a mystery from the very beginning to the end. And and all of the little pieces of information were sort of spread out consistently throughout the episode. And I liked that. I liked the process of discovery that we got to go through. Um, the Really, the only scene that re- struck me as a hunt it down and kill it was the last scene when Amos goes and, and is able to find it. And uh, that was fine. I, um, Stephen quite liked the fact that there's all this buildup about this thing. And finally, we, we discover it's a creature. And then we still never actually see it at the end. He thought that was really cool that we just get a little bit of an outline, but it's it's left as something mysterious. And I think that's what really spoke to me about this whole story was the mystery of it. It was, it was a mysterious thing, not so much a uh, let's go kill the baddie kind of story. Yeah, that's emblematic, though, of some of the things that bothered me about this episode. When they get back in there, the firefight has sort of begun off screen. But when when they finally get in there, when Sheridan um, shows up with his really big gun and coordinates with Franklin, sidebar, that love that ready. scene in CNC <laughs> when uh, he's like, we may need big guns. And <laughs> Ivanova hands him the big gun like, I- I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. He's, and gives her that look. But um, that wonderfully creepy moment where Amos is just suspended in midair. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost a Blair Witch moment. You know, it's really creepy. Yeah. I really like that. And then they rescue Amos. And then he runs back in there, and that just sort of undercuts it. It's like um, 
there's a comic called Crisis on Infinite Earths where in the last episode, the alien gets whittled down. Like there, there are no less than four final confrontations between the big alien bad guy called the Anti-Monitor and the heroes. And each time he gets whittled away more. And by the end, he's just this he, he, he's just this shell of the super bad guy that he was at the beginning of this episode. So each confrontation is less and less meaningful. So in this one, we've got Amos sort of hovering and it's scary and you can't see anything. And and then he runs back in there and it just happens again. But this time the alien gets shot from several directions and disappears and you barely see his uh you barely see his skeleton then the worst effect in babylon 5 history with this sort of glowing orange ball that doesn't have any shape any proper shape or dimension to it goes away it's, sorry i'm ranting here but <laughs> they could <laughs> have done that better you're talking about yeah i'm the- trying to remember as well I may actually cut that out. That may actually be our featured image for the podcast. Um, okay, but, but uh, or or I'll stick or I'll stick it in the show notes. But suffice I still it don't to, know what you mean, though. Suffice it to say, I didn't think they did a good job with that. Okay. Well, I I quite liked the effect at the end when you just see the outline of the alien. You could see mm-hmm. like it's you know it's a massive thing and it's got some horns, but you don't see it very yeah. clearly. That's that's my favorite kind of horror when when you're not necessarily right. given a full on shot of you know it's almost Lovecraftian. It like your your imagination is going to be scarier than whatever it is that you see. Yeah, and I think that's part of what bothers me again about you know like the episode that it could have been executed better because towards the beginning there's you know with the reveals of um how mariah's husband died and the slow connection with um how amos's um how amos's unit was wiped out things like that building um the the creepy shots the you know the the slow zoom on ivanova um you know there were things that were done well to start building that suspense and you know a little bit like chip once it was almost like once the thing was taken care of, it seemed like almost everybody was very matter of fact about it again. It's like, you know, kind of a little bit like a reset button, problem solved. And Jakara is the only one, you know, he's looking at the book at the end and we see in the book of Jaquan, hey, that silhouette looks familiar. You know, that's like the only tiny tidbit left of what could have been, you know, for a real sense of foreboding and horror. It's, it's just kind of, I just feel like there could have been a little bit more in that direction. I don't like it sometimes when they try to telecast too much. I, I, I appreciate mm. that these are just hardworking, you know, down-to-earth soldier people who are trying to get through the day, and every day is a struggle on Babylon 5 because something crazy is happening. So this is the something <laughs> crazy that happened. I mean, when you think about it, when you had a soul hunter at the beginning, and you had, like, all of mm-hmm. these different random things that show up on Babylon 5, I'm totally okay with them going back to status quo as soon as it's taken care of. Perhaps. Although, so status quo that the, the Drazi doesn't have his purple sash? I missed okay, that. The fight's when he, when he over. It's been taken care of. It's all done. And I, I did want to point out a couple of just sort of direction things from a mechanical standpoint that Stephen pointed mm-hmm. out and that I also noticed. Um, we quite liked the overhead shots, you know, the which mm-hmm. I didn't yeah, realize I, at the beginning of the episode. That was sort of, a, you know, a, a POV from the alien because it's so huge and tall. Um, but mm. I... And then, you know, you find that out later. So it's kind of a nice little, little, ah, that makes sense. But even, even in the elevator when they were taking, yeah, taking the, um, the guy to med lab, I was, you know, I don't know if that was supposed to be the alien POV or not. Maybe not. It was just a really cool shot where you see them working from up above the whole time. Yeah. Um, and then that the scene, in the Copernicus, when Mariah goes back after she gets out of med lab and, and Stephen comes in and, and talks to her, that was really, really well directed. Even though I'm not crazy about the, the chemistry between those two, that was one continuous shot through that entire scene. And mm-hmm. I, I, I liked that scene between them, I think, better than some of some of the others. There were, there were two scenes between them that I enjoyed. This one, because she was giving her personal backstory and yeah it's probably not good enough that she and her husband were you know had kind of a rocky relationship like that that still doesn't make it okay but it helps mm-hmm. a little tiny bit and then the scene where earlier in the, the episode where dr franklin is explaining all of the things that have happened to mariah we you know talking mm-hmm. about the centauri giving us jump gate technology and all that kind of stuff it was another one yeah. of those examples of an information dump that didn't feel like an information dump that was very naturally right. delivered once 
we got mm-hmm. past the soliloquy by Franklin about the wars, the revelations, <laughs> the, the that one just felt troweled on, like like uh, an insert by Straczynski, maybe. Um, it, it starts out very, it, it starts out very artificial, and then we actually get to motivated exposition because uh, she doesn't know the history, and Franklin tells it to her. It's not an as you know, Bob, because she doesn't know Bob. Um, mm-hmm, but before mm-hmm. that, uh, that artificial dialogue was just bad. Maybe he was just trying to impress her with his poetic sort of speech. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that so, doesn't make it better. Uh, it, no, it doesn't. And at this point, uh, I've got to say that I was not a fan of Dr. Franklin's bedside manner. <laughs> no. Good way to put it. Can we think of anything else to talk about within the episode or what has come before before we jump through our gate? I will confess that Erica has done to me what we've done to her from time to time. I'm feeling a little right. more favorable about the episode than I was coming in, oh, yeah. but okay. but not greatly so. Uh, I'm, I'm interested. I'm always interested when you have differences of opinion on how well directed an episode was, for example. And uh, I think this is one of those areas where um, I just don't see where you're seeing in terms of the the structure of the episode and how whether it makes sense in all the right places but you've won me around a little bit more on the atmosphere okay excellent yeah i think this is definitely one of those agree to disagree things because i think if it had been directed in the way that would have hung together well for you i probably wouldn't have liked it as much so it's simply just a matter of of what (laughs) appeals personally um i do have just a couple other things in my notes to touch on okay Uh, first of all is is you know i will give you that the idea of this story is is maybe not you know it's new for babylon 5 to have this horror element but it's not exactly a new idea overall when the uh copernicus first show, showed up steven just turned to me and said is it con <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> well yeah kind of um yeah we, we've then, had our cryogenic travelers from the past in other shows yep that's you know but hey i'm kind of glad they didn't dwell do a whole lot on that though Yes, that's true. They could have made the whole story be about that, and they chose to go in another direction. So that yeah, we saw nice. that episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, another quick camera move directing thing when Ivanova is in the Copernicus. I think all of the right. the, the scenes in the Copernicus were actually pretty cool uh, when she is looking around and and trying to you know figure out what the heck is going on in there. You get a lot of POV shots of her, the camera moving around different different spots mm-hmm. on the walls and stuff so that was that was another good atmospheric moment for me it made me feel yeah you know, like I, I, I quite like that movie that was one of the things that i did like early on as they were building suspense that worked for me mm-hmm. and i mean speaking of atmospheric sets and stuff at the very end in the spot where they have the showdown with the alien and this isn't new for this episode i don't think but there's all those moving yellow spotlights which mm-hmm. i there's I can't think of an in-story reason for those things. It just it, those are purely there for dramatic effect. So they kind of made <laughs> me laugh a little bit. I don't know why you would have moving lights like that. It just seems like a waste of energy. Um, so there's that. And then to end, I will end on a negative note to bring it down a little bit to, uh, <laughs> to the level that you guys felt was was one more thing about the um, uh, the actress who played Mariah. I you know her performance was it was sometimes better than others but when she gets out of stasis and finds out her husband's dead and then she can't cry both steven and i t- turned to each other and we're kind of like was it because maybe after a bunch of takes this this actress was not <laughs> able to to have that happen so they had to throw in a line like that i liked the line i liked the idea that they're giving us a, you know one quick line gives us a little backstory on how cry- mm-hmm. cryogenics work but i just wondered at the reason for that i don't know it is certainly plausible. <laughs> All right, then we will be moving on to our next episode. The homework for this time will be A Spider in the Web. Um, and I will give a heads up after that. We will be doing some of our master episode list jumps. Um, so we'll be going uh, away from DVD order after the Spider in the Web episode, our next episode. 
Uh, and as always, uh, we love to hear from people who are listening. Uh, please join us at our website, b5audioguide.com, where we have our discussion threads. We have the Zocalo for people who are watching the show for the first time and don't want to be spoiled for what's coming. And Earhearts, for those of us who have seen the show and are enjoying it again and want to pull things together from everywhere. Uh, you can also follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, both at b5audioguide. And with that, let's jump through our gate. And we're back. And we can take a look at all of the things that this episode sets up for what's coming up. And that's, I think, one of the things that, you know, like I said a little bit in Before the Jump Gate, it frustrates me a bit because this episode gives us a big push towards our major shadow story arc. And of course, you know, nobody, nobody watching it for the first time will necessarily realize it yet. It depends on how, mu- how much they've been paying attention. But, you know, and that's one of the reasons that I wished that the, the story overall, the direction, whatever, had been a little bit stronger. Well, for what it's worth, I think that it actually worked that way just perfectly with Steven because he mm-hmm. caught on immediately. He was, I mean, he doesn't know the word shadows yet, but he right. started saying the darkness because he noticed yeah. that uh, in the last episode we had, I think it was a techno mage saying something about a great darkness mm-hmm. coming. And then, and then this uh, talking about a sol- this being a soldier of darkness right. and that t- perfectly twigged for Steven. And I think, I think if it would have been any more heavy handed, it would have been too much and maybe taken away mm-hmm. from, from what I got out of this story. So I like that right. it was more of a gentle push in that mm-hmm. direction. Was it yeah, too just, on the nose that the Copernicus was heading to Zahadum? No, I, I think that that's, I mean, looking forward, I think that that's necessary because, you know, in, they even said something in this was it Jakar saying that he that the, the this great darkness is gathering its forces? Um, mm-hmm. It was either Jakar or the Mark Ab, one or the other. Yeah. yeah. So so they you know it's it's made pretty clear that I, I don't know where else it could have possibly been heading and have it still make sense to to fit in with everything later down the road. Yeah, but I I really like that that scene, the sort of you know the the council scene, and the the bits with the the silhouette of the the creature, both as they kill it uh, and the lightning goes all around it, and then in Jakar's book, of mm-hmm. um, helping to you know show that you know yeah the the Narn actually knows something about what's going on, and of course it takes so frustratingly long for <laughs> the Mimbari and uh, the Vorlons to realize that you know what hey the Narns have information that we could use. I think um, that I like that though because I like the fact that you know that the Mimbari and the Vorlons really think that they are just the bee's knees. Yeah, and I think that yeah. they're you know talk about classism. They they really are ignoring the the lesser races, maybe especially the Narn mm-hmm. because they've been so beat yeah. down. So I think it's you know it's it's kind of funny oh, to yeah, just it, watch them miss it. Every time. And that's the reason, actually, I think that the Vorlons and the Minbari are not at council because ah. they know that. And, and, you know, I was I was I was being facetious a little bit uh, before the jump gate. But the Minbari and yeah. the Vorlons know exactly what's happening here. And they are nowhere near council right now because they don't want to tip their hands. That makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. I did not put that together. Thanks, Trip. Yeah, that, that was my thought as well. So we've got, of course, the hints of Zahadum, the the fact that apparently as long as 10 years ago when this, you know, or, you know, however many years ago that this thing jumped uh, onto Mariah's ship, well, it had to be 10 years ago because of Amos's uh, intelligence unit, that, you know, this has been going on for a while to uh, realize that the, the shadows have been moving chess pieces around and gathering their forces, uh, counterbalancing that, you know, maybe caution the Vorlons are have been, you know, we'll find out later. They've been moving their chess pieces with the Mimbari and so forth, making yeah. the Mimbari think that they're helping and they're equal partners. Uh, <laughs> Although it, it turns didn't out no such thing. It didn't necessarily have to be 10 years ago. I mean, we know that Amos was rescued 10 years ago, but the, the creature mm-hmm. could have sat there on that moon for, for a few years before the Copernicus happened by. Yeah. We don't mm-hmm. I, I, oh, yeah. I think you're, and I think you're right about that. Uh, and there are a couple of other elements about of the sort of the shadows waking up before now uh, that we'll see later on in the series. Uh, when we get to, I believe it's Messages from Earth in the third season, when Garibaldi and Dr. Kirkish tell the story of the shadow ship being excavated on Mars. That's well before the shadows start waking up in on ma- masse 
So mm-hmm. just like that, the um, shadow servants, which is what this thing sort of is. It's, you know, it's not a shadow. It doesn't look like what we will come to see as the shadows hanging out with Morden. Oh, we've actually already seen them. This is bigger and different. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, they've been waking up for years. This has been coming. This isn't something that started with the gathering. Um, right. This is this is something that's been in motion well before Jeffrey Sinclair first stepped on Babylon 5. So I like that we're getting all of this stuff that the war isn't coming. The war is already here. And this is the mm-hmm. process of discovering that you're actually in the middle of a war. You just don't know it yet. Yeah. Yep. Um, and there's some other lovely hints and call outs here and there. Um, of course, we've got the reference of um, Amos questioning whether Londo is in league with the devil or in Garibaldi saying, you know, yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> as it turns out, more or less. Sure um, and what Chip, Chip didn't go into it too deeply, but he mentioned Londo looking a little bit more, you know, darker and subdued. On the Lurker's Guide, JMS says this is an actual choice on the part of the production staff to gradually shift Londo from Mr. Peacock and Gaudy and all Empire to much more simple silhouettes, darker clothing, um, and, and this is going to move him to um, to fit the that so that his um, so that the the clothes fit the man that he is becoming. Even his hair so, looks nastier. Yeah, yeah. So there's Not this gradual just slow mean, move. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't notice that, but that is that is awesome, and I'm totally going to watch for it next time. Because and it makes perfect yeah. sense because when you have real power, you don't necessarily need to flaunt all of the trappings of it. I think before mm-hmm. he was he was really you know the peacock thing because he wanted to puff himself up and seem like he was yeah. important. Now he's really got some power, so he doesn't need all of that nonsense anymore. Yeah, yeah. So it's all a concentrated, coordinated move on on that part with that character. Um, and of course, again, we have the, the dark hand reaching out line, you know, even though this time it's, you know, Amos talking about the soldier of darkness. But again, we have the same language that the Technomage used last episode that we will see when Londo starts having his, his visions when he does come to power. And I also liked I mentioned it before the Sheridan's insistence on, on believing it when I see it, that in some cases it serves him well. Um, because he doesn't let himself get too pulled into too much drama too early. But then on the other hand, it sort of pushes him to a point where it's almost too late for him to act sometimes to, to help take care of things because he's holding back. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, when he he falls at Zahadum, pretty much because Delenn's been telling him not to go to Zahadum. And right. he sees the he, he sees the flash forward about the fall of Centauri Prime and all that stuff. And he ignores Delin's warning because he feels like he has to go to Zahadum to maybe avert that future and thereby, you know, causing it. You know, this this I've got to see for myself. I've got to do for myself. Maybe I can change that sort of thing. That's uh, that's almost a fatal flaw for Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He really is exactly. a sort of hands on kinesthetic learner sort of he needs to, to see it to, to, to you know be doing it in order for it to really uh, register with him yeah and you know that's another reason why it's a good thing that he replaced uh, Sinclair in the story because if Delin had told Sinclair not to go to Zahadum Sinclair probably would have listened to her <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think you're right yes he would have the only other thing that sort of jumped at me as far as not necessarily foreshadowing, but it echoed for me, was uh, Garibaldi, when he's talking to Amos at one point and, you know, grumbles about, you know, missing his chance to be a hero. That that sort of resonated with me, both with um, Sinclair's flash forward, where in Babylon Square, they're going back and forth in time, and he gets to this future and Garibaldi's about to make his stand, and, you know, it's the fight I've been waiting for. So that kind of resonated with me a bit. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know if... If there are anything, anything else like that that leaped out at people, as as we said before, the jump gate. This this is, even though we've got several of these hints underneath about what's going on with the Shadow War, it really is such a self-contained story. Yeah, nothing else jumped out at me. I didn't find an opportunity to talk about it before the jump gate. I thought that Garibaldi was a little inconsistent in this story. Um, I mean, yes, respect for Amos as a fellow soldier. But he was almost too 
counsel-y, almost to uh, Veterans Affairs Department kind of um, with Amos talking about, you know, talking about that stuff. So I, I, I guess I missed well, that. I guess I missed that sort of reference because I didn't. He, he Garibaldi struck me as more sensitive in this episode than he has been for the most part, and I was so thrown by that that I didn't see those resonances. I was well, okay I, with I him because because of Garibaldi's personal history. I mean, now we know he has this personal history as a, a ground pounding soldier, but also his history with addiction. And he has has clearly gone through the recovery process now a couple of times. So I don't think it's it's out of the realm of believability to think that he would have a bit of this this ability to talk somebody through you know the, their PTSD or the the terrible situations that they've gone through. Um, you know, it's it's quite possible that he's had some sort of support somewhere along the line that's similar to that and he's sort of sort of passing it along kind of like you know somebody who's had a sponsor becoming a sponsor yeah and also i i think there's been echoes of this um in a couple of his conversations with sinclair in season one when you know he's you know when when he notices that sinclair has flashes of being dangerously close to to not caring about what happens to him anymore, about putting himself into dangerous situations. And, you know, th- there's the same kind of tone when Garibaldi says, you know, hey, you you need to step back. You know, we've got you matter. You know, we've got people who care about you. You shouldn't be doing this. So I don't think it's, it's totally re- it's not out of left field for me. I think it's resonance. I think that that kind of damage in Amos is resonating with a similar kind of damage in Garibaldi and that that's what we're seeing. That's what that's why he becomes more gentle because he's this is the only way that he can treat himself kindly is to treat somebody else that way. Okay, can we think of anything else we want to talk about before we sign off? I just will point out even though okay. Steven's not listening. If Stephen were listening, I'd be pointing out that he's going to get all the Talia he can handle next time. <laughs> Indeed. His his poor little head may just explode. <laughs> he won't know what to do with himself. Okay. And then, as always, we thank everybody for listening uh, as we dissect these episodes one by one all through all five years of Babylon 5. Please do watch the, A Spider in the Web for our next episode in two weeks. And join us online at b5audioguide.com or Twitter or Tumblr, B5 Audio Guide. Until next time, this is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>